Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, chapter 5. That's where we're going to begin momentarily. As we get ready to do some Q&A for the month of February. Those of you that are visiting with us, once a month we allocate just a little bit of pulpit time to questions that have been uh, submitted to me in various forms and from various folks who are looking for Bible answers to the questions that are on their mind. So that's going to start in just a moment in Matthew chapter 5. It is great to see everybody tonight, and it has been just a beautiful, lovely day the Lord has given us. I really don't know what that groundhog saw or was thinking a few weeks ago because it's looking like spring's coming early for us this week, and I'm thankful for that, and we can praise God for that, and uh, just be happy for His goodness, and I think that's shown tonight even as we've sung and prayed together for these first few minutes together. This evening, I'm going to be addressing just one uh, question that I've really been waiting for the right time to tackle it. And after the events that happened last week in South Florida, and then kind of the sermon that I preached this morning uh, in regards to a lot of that, this really just seemed like probably the most opportune time to try and answer a very oft-asked question about self-defense about when or if self-defense is ever appropriate and whether God would allow such. In fact, I want to just put up here on the screen the question as it was specifically submitted to me. The question was, can a Christian use deadly force to protect himself and his loved ones from those who seek to harm? Now, before we jump into the question itself, I want to just say a couple of things right up front that I think we need to just kind of keep in the back of our minds as we work throughout this study. First of all, I'll just say, I do not believe that there is a clear black and white answer to this question. I am not aware of a single passage in Scripture that provides just a clear-cut, mandated doctrinal position either for or against the use of self-defense. In fact, that's usually the reason that questions like this find their way to Q&A night, because there is just kind of so much question about it. Which means that we are talking tonight about an area of personal judgment. Each and every individual is going to have to come to their own conclusion upon this. And each and every individual is going to have to live within the constraints of their own conscience. I'll answer for me, and you'll answer for you whenever we give our account to the Lord. And so we want to keep those principles of Romans chapter 14 at the forefront of our minds. Secondly, I'll just tell you, we're not going to address the legality of this subject. And the reason we're not going to get into all the the legal hoopla about this subject is simply because laws about self-defense, they vary wherever you go. Here in the United States, they vary from state to state. Some states have what are called duty-to-retreat laws. And that law sounds exactly like it, like exactly the way it said, that you first of all have a duty to just retreat and run away whenever someone seeks to do you harm, and you can't just immediately act in self-defense in that way. They put some limitations on what constitutes and what can be called deadly force. And so it's not my intention tonight to get into all of the different laws about self-defense. Instead, I'll simply just remind you to think about Romans the 13th chapter. Romans 13 is that passage that tells us that we are to be subject to the governing authorities and that we are to submit to the laws of our land. Regardless of maybe how strong your conviction might be about this, you need to just remember 
that we always have an obligation to obey the law. Now, with those two thoughts in mind, let's talk about this. What about self-defense? Most of the questions, and I think most of the objections to the use of self-defense, they usually center around really just kind of a handful of passages that in my estimation are often misused or maybe just misunderstood. And I want to just put those passages before us tonight, just right as we kind of get underway, and let's see if these passages actually teach what people think they teach. And the first of those is right here in Matthew, the fifth chapter, here in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just read it together in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 39 is really the verse that a lot of folks will point to and they'll cite and they'll say, look, there it is. If somebody is seeking to do you harm, you can't be taking any kind of defensive action or reaction that might in turn harm them. Jesus says somebody slaps you on the right cheek, you're to say, here you go, you can slap me on the left cheek too. Now I must tell you that those who take that kind of position, I really almost want to question their use of that particular verse And I really want to question whether they're really being consistent about the use of that verse, particularly when you look at the total context of the verses that we just read. For example, the same people who would bind that particular application of verse 39 are often the very same people who would walk right past somebody who would beg them for money and not give them a dime. Yet verse 42 says that's what you're supposed to do. If you're going to apply this passage just absolutely literally, then you're going to have to give to every person who begs of you and not refuse anyone. And I don't think that's what this passage is teaching on the whole. I think the real spirit of this text in Matthew chapter 5 is not a prohibition against self-defense. No, this is a prohibition here against the idea of retaliation and revenge. This is a prohibition against that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth mentality that Jesus says there in verse 38. The idea here is that let's say, let's say Robbie, he's driving out past Rick's house. And Robbie, maybe as he's driving past Rick's house, he ends up driving by Rick's mailbox and crashes into it and breaks it into a million pieces. Well, Rick is not then justified to go over to Robbie's house and he's going to knock down his mailbox and trash his mailbox in revenge. That's really what this passage is talking about. And that's what this passage is warning against, that kind of action. If I were to give you maybe an even more blunt illustration, and when I give you this illustration, it's probably going to make a lot of you feel uncomfortable, and intentionally so. But if somebody wants to apply this turn the other cheek in such a literal way, then can I just ask you this? If somebody were to break into your house, and they sexually assaulted your wife, Do you have to say, hey, hold on, I have a daughter as well? Is that how we're going to use that passage? Because again, as extreme as that sounds, that would be the literal application of this verse. 
If somebody cuts off your right arm, do you have to say, oh, hey, I've got a left arm too, would you cut that one off also? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying that if somebody harms you, don't go hunting them down and intentionally harm them back. You don't take revenge. Now, sometimes folks will actually stay right here and they'll even look at the verses that follow. Just look at the next couple of verses. Verse 43. In verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Once again, the idea here is that, well, if somebody breaks into your home, and if you really love your enemy, then, then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to just stop everything you're doing. You're supposed to just pray for that person. Not harm them, not take any kind of defensive action. No, you just pray for that person because you love them. Well, does that mean that you allow somebody to commit an evil deed simply because you love them? Indeed not. In fact, I believe that if you really did love somebody, you would try to stop them from doing the wrong thing. Isn't that what we do with our kids? Isn't that what we do with our friends when they see that they're doing harm? Try to stop them from doing that. Why? Because we love them. Jesus is teaching here against the idea of having hatred for your enemy. That's the emphasis in Matthew 5. It's to love our enemies. Now there's a similar passage that gets used in this connection in Romans chapter 12. Paul gives a number of admonitions in Romans chapter 12. Look in verse 19. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes there, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will eat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is another one of those kind of enemy passages. And the message, I think, is very much the same to Matthew chapter 5. And that is, don't go seeking vengeance yourself. Let God seek the vengeance. And then there is that additional detail given there in verse 20 about giving your enemy food and drink. Now I'll say once again, if we're going to take that passage literally, and here we are, we're at home, and somebody breaks into our home, then what that means is, if we're going to take this literally, then that means we've got to then help them load all of our stuff into their getaway van, and then when they're done with that, we're going to invite them in for tea and crumpets and just have a good time that evening. Folks, that is not the spirit of the text here. And I use these rather extreme examples and these extreme extensions of this particular position to just show you how they all eventually just break down and fall apart. In fact, if you'll stay here in Romans 12, just back up to verse 17, when Paul says there, Repay no one evil for evil. I think I can make a pretty good argument that allowing evil to persist, that that in and of itself is evil. And so I do not believe that either of these passages, when we examine them within their context, give any support to what is just commonly referred to as kind of the the pacifist mindset. Because what these passages are warning us about is about the mentality and the attitude of taking revenge and being vengeful. Now, probably the most well-known passage that gets used in this kind of discussion would be in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20. And this is particularly kind of thrown out there whenever anybody's talking about self-defense that might lead to a death. You defend yourself so much that it ends up causing this offender to die. 
Exodus 20 verse 13 is that famous verse where the King James Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. Well, there you go. Thou shalt not kill. Somebody pulls a gun on you? Well, you can't pull a gun back on them in self-defense because the Bible says, don't be killing. Well, actually, the word that's translated kill in Exodus 20 and verse 13 is a much more specific term than just that word kill. I've covered this in a prior Q&A, but I'll just briefly touch on it again. That word is better translated murder. If you're reading from a New King James or New American Standard or an NIV or an ESV, that's the way that it's rendered. That is a specific term that forbids the unjust taking of innocent life. The kind of killing that's talked about here in Exodus 20:13, we're talking about premeditated killing, murder, taking someone's life in cold blood. Self-defense, yes, it could result in a person being killed. But that's not the same as murder. Now then, having said some things about these few passages, and there may be others, and I'll be glad to maybe entertain those afterwards if anybody's got any of those that they think of, it's worth then asking, well, what kind of scriptural support, if any, is there in favor of self-defense? And I want to just say right here that we are not just talking about this idea of using deadly force. I realize that that is how the original question was posed. What about the use of deadly force? But I think you'll see, and if you haven't already seen this, that if deadly force isn't permissible, then neither would non-deadly force. And so since we're here in the book of Exodus, would you just jump over to Exodus chapter 22? In Exodus chapter 22, what we'll see is that under the law of Moses, there was actually an allowance for self-defense. In Exodus chapter 22, I'm reading here in verses 2 and 3. In Exodus 22 and in verse 2, the law said, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, there's a couple different scenarios that are laid out in those verses there. First of all, if a thief breaks in at night and you strike him and it ends up killing him, then the law said you are not guilty of that man's blood. And if he comes during the day and you catch him in the act of doing that, then that man has to repay what he's stolen. And if he doesn't have the money to repay it, he's going to be sold as a slave in order to repay what he's stolen. Now, here's what's interesting about that is I kind of think, I think about trying to put myself in that same situation. If somebody breaks into my house, there is not an interview process where I ask, hey, are you here to kill me or are you here just to steal my TV? We don't have that conversation somebody breaks into my house. An intruder is viewed the same in those situations. And the reason why here in Exodus chapter 22, why at night the homeowner is allowed to strike the person is because he doesn't know what this intruder is doing. And I believe what the law of Moses is saying and what it is allowing is that since you don't know what that man's intent is, you have the right to defend yourself and to defend your family. And in fact, we even have kind of an example of this law being at least being discussed later on in the Old Testament. Would you look fast forward to Jeremiah chapter 2? In Jeremiah chapter 2, 
Jeremiah, he is pronouncing judgment on Israel. And these folks were guilty of just a lot of different things. And one of the things he talks about here is about how they took advantage of the poor. In Jeremiah chapter 2, look at how he phrases this particular word of condemnation to them. In Jeremiah 2, look in verse 34. He says that also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. What Jeremiah was coming to speak to them about is saying, no, you're not innocent. You are guilty. Jeremiah says, you harmed the poor. And you did that willingly and knowingly and purposely. And the implication here is that if this had been somebody who broke into your house and they were seeking to harm you, then yeah, you would have been justified. You would have been justified in taking their blood. You would have been innocent. You would not have been held guilty. But in this case, you are guilty. Because it wasn't a case of somebody breaking into your house. And so we read these couple of passages, and that's just a couple of examples of this. But what we see here is we see that God is making an allowance for, for what we would probably call today justifiable homicide. Now, somebody's going to quickly say, well, that's the Old Testament, Josh, and I... I concede that. I'm just kind of just showing what the Old Testament taught. What about in the New Testament? And in particular, what about Jesus? We read some passages earlier about some things that Jesus said, and we kind of talked about what those things did not mean. What about things that Jesus did teach, and His apostles did teach that we can be sure of? Well, how about we start in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, there is kind of an interesting discussion here where Jesus tells His apostles... You fellas need to go and get some swords. Now, I'm going to confess to you that up until this past week, when I was studying and preparing for this lesson, I don't think I ever truly understood the context of what Jesus says here. I will also confess to you that in times past, whenever I heard people reference this passage in, in support of self-defense, I used to kind of chuckle to myself and think, that's not what that verse is talking about. I was wrong. And I'll explain to you why. In Luke chapter 22, look beginning in verse 35. In Luke 22 verse 35, Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. He said to them, verse 36, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak, and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now, we read this passage. We think about the swords. And maybe if you're like me, maybe one of the first things you think of is you think about the scene in the garden just shortly after this, where Peter pulls out that sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus tells him to put the sword up. And he says that his time has not, or he tells him that his time has actually come. And Peter in that moment is really kind of rebuked for using the sword. And so sometimes people have looked, and I in the past, I kind of looked at that and I've said, well, you know, all right, yeah, they did have swords, obviously, but Jesus just had them carry the swords to 
I don't know, just show them that they really didn't need to use them. Maybe the swords were just kind of just kind of part of the ensemble. You just kind of wore it as an ornament. That's what everybody's wearing these days. Some people have even tried to reason away here in Luke chapter 22 that these swords, well, they really aren't swords as we know them. These are really kind of more like just little pocket knives, not swords. I'll tell you, I've studied this from a language standpoint. That's just foolish. The word sword here in Luke 22, it means what you think it means. It means a sword. It is the very same word that Paul uses over in the book of Ephesians to talk about the sword of the Spirit. Talking about the armor of God. Let me ask you, whenever you think about the armor of God, putting on all those pieces of equipment that Paul describes in Ephesians 6, then when it gets to the sword of the Spirit, do you picture a guy holding a little pocket knife? Me neither. The sword here in Luke chapter 22, it is a sword. It is a death weapon. So the question is, well, why did Jesus tell the apostles to go get swords? Well, would you look again there at verse 35? Jesus says, when I first sent you guys out, I sent you out with nothing, and yet you were provided for, right? And the apostles reply back, yeah, we were provided for. We didn't lack anything. And why was that? Well, that's because Jesus was taking care of them. Jesus was making sure that their needs were provided for. But then Jesus says in the next couple of verses, He says, but now, now I'm leaving. And so if you have a knapsack, you need to start taking your own provisions. And you're going to need to start carrying your own money back. And then He says, if you don't have a way to protect yourself, because keep in mind, people back then were very susceptible to, to, to robbers and to bandits. When you read the story about the Good Samaritan, that, that whole context of that story about the guy getting beaten and left for death, people understood about that. Yeah, that road from Jericho to Jerusalem, all kinds of robbers and bandits along the way. Jesus says, being mindful of that, He's telling them, you need to get you a sword. And the reason that Peter was chastised in the garden for pulling that sword on Malchus is because the swords were never meant to defend Jesus. Swords were meant to protect the apostles. His hour had come, but theirs had not. And so while I recognize that many people are inclined to look at Luke 22 or look at other passages and say that, well, you know, Jesus would never encourage or condone the use of any kind of force to defend yourself... I think those people are going to have to wrestle long and hard with what Luke 22 and what the context actually does show us. Luke 22 shows us Jesus actually commanded His apostles to carry swords so that they could defend themselves. I think when I can add to that what Jesus taught in Matthew the 24th chapter. Jesus uses some imagery in Matthew chapter 24 to describe judgment. I don't know if calling this a parable would necessarily be the appropriate term, but he uses kind of some, he uses an illustration. In Matthew 24, look in verse 43. Jesus says, but know this. He says, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. He reads that verse. Is Jesus saying there that if the master knew the thief was coming, that he'd stay up late and he'd help him load all of his goodies into that guy's van? Is that what, of course not. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says if the master knew when the thief was going to come and break in, he'd stay up and he'd stop him from doing that. He's going to protect himself. He's going to protect his family. He's going to protect his home. 
That whole illustration there in Matthew chapter 24 is built on the very premise of someone being justified in using self-defense. And then I think about a couple of passages that Paul wrote. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 28 and 29, as Paul talked about the husband and wife relationship, he of course is really making some points about the, the relationship that Christ has to the church, but he uses that to talk about husbands and wives and how they're to deal with one another. He says in Ephesians 5 and verse 28 that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I don't know about you, but I read that and I seem to see an implication in that passage. That men, just as you take care of yourselves, you love yourself, you love your body, take care of your body, you protect your body, you're going to do the same thing for your wife. By extension, you do the same thing for your children and your family. And then I think about 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verse 8, where Paul says in that passage... That if any man does not provide for his family, he's denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. I realize that many times we read that verse and we talk about the idea, think about the idea of providing for his family. What we immediately think of are like financial needs. We think about providing food and clothing and shelter and that, that certainly would fall into all of this. But can I ask you, does a father, does a husband, Do they not also have an obligation to provide protection for their family? Protection like, for example, from illness, taking steps to help protect their children and and, and wife from that. Taking steps to provide protection from the outside elements, wild animals and nature. and Of course we understand all of that. Why then would that not apply to the idea of protecting one's own life when it is under duress. Now I realize somebody would read that and they would say, well, you know, we maybe kind of differ on how we're going to provide that protection. Maybe my definition of protecting my family and providing for them that way would be hiding them if somebody breaks into our home or getting the kids and sending them out the door and telling them to run away. Maybe that's my definition of that. But I will say this. I have a hard time saying That a father who would willingly allow harm to come upon his family because he didn't believe in self-defense of any kind, I have a hard time saying that that man is actually providing for his family as 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 teaches. For me, and this is purely for me, I would rather face God in judgment knowing that I defended my wife and especially my child than to have just sat idly by and allowed harm to befall. Now you may think about that differently. You may see that differently. And you know what? That's okay. That's that Romans 14 stuff. If it bothers you to use any kind of self-defense when somebody approaches you or accosts you in some way, don't use self-defense. If it bothers you to own a gun or any other kind of weapon of protection, don't get a gun. Don't violate your conscience. That's what the Bible teaches. But I'll just say this in conclusion. I can't find any passage that would condemn the use of deadly or non-deadly force in defense of oneself and in defense of one's family whenever others would seek to do you harm. 
Now, I'll just close by saying this, and I think this word of balance needs to be said as we finish. If you do choose to act in self-defense, and I know that there are some folks in here, I know where they stand on this particular issue. I know we've got some fellows who, they are gun owners, they've got a license to carry it, and they may even be having one right now carrying it on their person as we speak. But I'll just say this, if you do choose to act in self-defense, you need to always balance that with the seriousness of the decision to potentially take another person's life. Judgment and wisdom in those situations, that's not something to be scoffed at. And it's not something to be taken lightly. Now, thinking about both of these lessons that we've presented today, I think if maybe there's some unifying thought there and a thought that really resonates with me, particularly as we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, it is the realization that we do live in very uncertain times. And we've talked about really in some ways kind of some morbid ideas. The idea that things could happen and we could die. We could die at any moment. Talked about this morning, sometimes the the chances of that maybe are very remote. but still a possibility. It may not be some gunman or some terrorist attack that causes us to leave this life early. It could be any number of things. And the point in all of that is that we just need to be ready. We need to always be ready for when this life ends... Or maybe if the Lord should choose to return before this life ends for us. And that is why when we come together every time, we do extend heaven's invitation. And it is the opportunity for you to make your life right with God if you never have done so. If you've never become a New Testament Christian, believing in Jesus, confessing Him as Lord, repenting and turning from sin, and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins... All things are ready for that to happen tonight. Maybe you just got questions about that. We need to study about that, talk about that. We're ready to assist you in that way as well. Brother or sister, if you're not living faithfully, we extend this invitation to you just as well. That if there's sin in your life, if your relationship with the Lord is not what it ought to be, you need to repent of that. You need to do that immediately. And if you want to call upon us as your spiritual family to encourage you and to help you to make your life right, then we're ready to help you as well. I want all of us to just be ready for whatever time we find ourselves facing eternity. We can help you to prepare for that tonight. Once you make your way down front and make it known, do that while we stand, while we sing.